Praise God. We're going to be back in Mark today. Let me just pray and then we'll we'll crack on. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord God, your life-giving, life-changing words that you have given to us, Father God, uh, both for the changing of our hearts, both for drawing us near to you, Lord God, and the building of your church and your community. And Lord God, we just pray that you do all three things today. In Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit, I pray. Amen. Question for you. How do we judge greatness in society? What are the marks of a, a great life? What makes somebody's life greater than someone else? I think, I just want to give you a couple of things this morning. That I think we tend to, in our society, measure greatness on. I think the first one would be this one. Net worth. Money. Money. You've got more money. You've achieved more. It's a sign. It's a sign of, uh, of power and greatness in your life. If you've got money to burn, you have been, you've been a success, haven't you? If you've got money. I think we can also use this word, achievement. You know, the more gold medals you've won, we look to those people and say, ah, oh, what a success, a great life. What a great life. You know, Everton have won the premiership how many times? Great team. Great team. Nine, nine, nine. It, like, as in never in German or something. German, yeah. Something like that. Do you know, what a great, what a great team. What a great success they've been. They have had a great life. Or we can do this just naturally gifted. I relate to this one a bit. Do you know, naturally Naturally humble, naturally humble I am. Naturally beautiful, naturally talented in singing. I'm not talking about me now, it's alright, it's alright. I'm talking about Guy. Naturally great, great singer. You know, we just, we praise them, don't we? These people, oh, she's so talented, so unbelievably talented. What a great life they've had. And in the church, we've got our own measures of greatness sometimes, which I think go like this, bigness. Bigness. I, do you know, I, ha- I haven't, I haven't heard it so much recently, which has been a real joy, but do you know, I've, I can tell you so many times I've been to church leaders meeting and the conversation very quickly after that kind of stale, hi, how you doing? Is, um, how's your church? Oh yes, yeah, doing alright. Got about, got about 200 people now and you know that means really 50 people, but like just, just it's there. It's a sign that you're a real success because of the bigness of your church, the bigness of your platform, the bigness of your ministry, the bigness of your influence. All of these things would be, yeah, really great, successful life. And I think with our own lives, this can become a bit of an evaluation tool of, of how well we're doing. We, we build a bit of a graph for our life, don't we, as we're trying to picture where we are, you know, comparative to everyone else. And we can be like, okay, so my, my net worth, you know, it's all right. It's all right. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty successful there. It's pretty, pretty good. And... Achievement-wise, well, I've not achieved so many things, so you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself quite high on on that ranking of of greatness and my great life. But you know what? Like I said, pretty naturally gifted, so I'm told. <laughs> and uh, so I'd, I'd go up a little bit on that graph. And Freedom Church, eh, we're pretty, we've got some bigness here. I think we've got some bigness. We're gonna get some more bigness. We're, we're pretty successful, aren't we? Pretty successful. So, you know, we can do that. And that, but then we can also, as we look at the world around us, we can use that to pitch compared to other people how great our life has been, those measures. So we can look at those people maybe who 
actually just, you know, they, they don't have a regular income for whatever reason. And maybe their achievement levels, just they, they just haven't worked out in the school system quite like we would see. And, and actually maybe they're, you know, they're not a looker or they, they don't have great singing voices. And what we do is we tend to put them down, lower the, the gift and the, and the greatness lifts. And then we compare against the other side of it, and there are these people, you know, who are just, they seem to just have everything in comparison to us, and do everything, and live, live a lifestyle of wealth, of achievement, of gifts. And, and when we compare against these guys, we, we go, do you know what? My life is just not as great. And, you know, it makes me a bit sad, because I'm never going to achieve a true life of greatness, because of you know, where I come from, because of who I am, because of what the opportunities. It's just an unfair world, and there's there's never going to be a life of greatness for me. And I, and I think this kind of thinking, which I think is pervasive in our world, I think we all do it, is actually really dangerous and something we have to be really careful of. I think it's the root of a lot of, uh, a lot of problems, actually, in society, or a root of those. I think, do you know, it can really affect our general life happiness, because... We can always be feeling like comparatively, like, you know, we've, we're never going to have a great life. It's never going to be a great life. If I look at just my lot in life, it's just, this is just what it, what it is. And actually we can end up feeling low, depressed. And I think that can play into mental health issues and difficulties with thinking about the world as well. It can be depressing as we look at the haves and we're the have nots or, we think about like anxiety, the anxiety of trying to drive forward to make our life a great success by these. It's a big message in the world. You've got to get these things to really be a success. So drive forward with everything you have. And if you don't get them, if you don't quite meet these marks, there's something to be really anxious about. It can also lead to a great misvaluing of others. To make ourselves feel better rather than looking up, we look down at people. And those people, those people down there, those, those people on benefits, phew, you know, I'm alright, I'm doing alright. I'm not, not in a third world, I'm not here, I'm not there. And also this kind of thinking I think can, can often break up churches as well. Why, why are those guys leading? I'm more gifted than them, I'm more capable, I've achieved more than them. I'd make this bigger, I'd make this bigger and better than those guys were. And it could become that point of frustration, of of bitterness, of difficulty, of dissatisfaction in church. Does that make sense? Do you know, in the passage of Mark today, it's such an important one, such a little bit important one, because in it, Jesus fundamentally challenges and changes the way that we should be defining as Christians what a great life is and what a life of greatness looks like. And he challenges all of the the dangers of getting into a comparative life like this. Let's just read it together and see what see what I'm talking about. Mark 9, 30 to 37, if you want to follow in your Bibles, I've got it up on the screen and I'll be coming back to certain passages, so you don't need to do that. It says this, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples and he said to them, the son of man 
is going to be delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be last. And the servant of all. He took a little child who he placed amongst them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Do you know, I want to share my favourite thing about the passage. It's found in verse 33 to 34, and, uh, and I love it. We are used to seeing images of the saints, aren't we? Our forefathers, the apostles, those first believers in Christianity and followers of Jesus. So looking so beautiful and holy, like this wonderful saintly painted picture, full of the power and peace of God. Images like this are a bit misleading because they lead us to believe that God picked them, Jesus picked them because they were the best, because they were the most righteous, the most holy. But this passage totally blows this out of the water. These holy men of God, these leaders in the church, these foundation stones of what would become that we are on today, we're having a right old Barney. We don't get the details here, but I can just imagine some of this conversation on the road Peter, just being impetuous, I can imagine him starting. Look, lads, uh, Jesus spoke to me about being the rock. He even changed my name from Simon to Peter. He gave it, did you get a new name? Did you get a new name? No, you didn't get a new name. Look, I'm clearly the greatest. And then I can imagine John harping up and going, oh, hold on a minute, yeah, he gave you a name, mate, but he said, I'm the one, I'm the one he really loves. If we look a bit further down in the gospel, he's going to let me look after his mum, It's me. It's me. I'm actually the greatest when he gets to it because he's given me his most special position. And I can imagine Judas harping up, like trying to get the word in Edgewood and everybody just going, shut up, Judas. Nobody even likes you. Like, (laughs) honestly, honestly, the only greatness you're having is a semi-angsty song by Andrew Lloyd Webber later on in life. Just, Just deal with that. That's your lot. Look, we don't know what it looked like. But I love... At this very phase in verse 34, they argued about who was the greatest. Do you know why I love it? Because I relate to it <laughs> completely. Because it makes them normal to me and you. When I was in union in my early 20s, I, I was in a great church. And I got to grow up in my faith in this place and develop leadership and communication skills with a load of other guys of a similar age, guys and girls who felt called to serve Jesus and his church. And I, you know, if you're in uni or in your 20s, I can't recommend anything more highly than getting together with other Christian 
believers, other guys you know are going for it with God, positioning yourself with them, building friendships with them, running with them, sharpening with them, and seeing what the Lord does with that group of people. Because there are so many things, good things, that came out of this time, actually. I would say the very heart of Freedom Church is here. I can think of three or four different churches that are now being led by this group of people who sharpened each other. Actually, the very fact that I would look to Chris and Chris and say, look, these guys are my my brothers, and whether Freedom Church lives or dies, we're still going to have a pint together and enjoy each other's company and spur each other on in the Lord. But the Lord did all of this in this time. It was exciting. But, you know, there was another edge to it mixed in that I would say was not great. You know, we were constantly evaluating who was better in the pecking order, who was the most gifted speaker, who was the most strategic, who had the bigger calling on their life, who was loved by God more, who was the best based on the gift set that they were displaying. Because none of us had actually achieved anything yet at university, none of us had actually earned any money or gone out in life or led any churches, it was all based on what we thought they would become bit like the disciples in this. And honestly, this did some harm, I think. It knocked people's confidences at times. It boxed them in a little bit. It caused a couple of rifts and tensions in the group. And it created some competition and a little bit of disunity at times within our group of friends. And this is not a culture that Jesus wants in the church. It's the opposite to seeing each other with Gideon eyes and the possibilities of what Jesus is going to bring out of them. Yes, we need feedback, definitely, when people are learning new skills. We need rebuke of one another. That's in there. Love and rebuke matters. But never a greatness comparison of the sort that we see in the disciples here. And I think we did a little bit as young men as well. And I think Jesus' amazing response to this Barney shows just how far they have moved in arguing like this from what he wants for them and his people. What is his response? Well, firstly, part one, in verse 35, we see this. We see that he sat down. It's important in the Bible when Jesus sits down. It means shut up and listen. This is important. I want you to get it. It's adopting the position of a rabbi. He's taking a position of authority and saying, I want you to get this. I want you to get what I'm about to say. I don't want you to misunderstand it. Something to take note of. And he says this in the seating positions. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. You know, in this one line, in a way that only Jesus can do, his simple one line, he once and for all, he completely redefines how we should understand greatness by revealing what his measure of a great life is, showing how he judges greatness in his kingdom. And what he says here, that his measuring stick is not your net worth, it's not about how naturally gifted you are, it's not even about how many gold medals you've achieved. It's about how much of a servant you have been willing to be to all those you encounter. When you are face to face before God, 
This is going to be his chart, his marker. Were you willing to put yourself last so that others could be first? Were you willing to do the inglorious job because it blessed your family, your church, your enemies even? Were you willing to go to the lepers of society, those without beauty, those with nothing to give back, and love them at a cost to yourself? Did you serve the mission of God in the local church? Or just consume from it? Criticise it? Try and use it as a platform for your own gain? Did you serve all? Did you serve all? And whether you're higher or you're lower on his chart of greatness will depend not on the answers you give, but the fruit of your life. Greatness in the creator's eyes is about the degree to which you are willing to make yourself low to support others to be great. Because that's what a servant does. That's his first part of the response to this argument. He sits down and says, get this, boys. Get this. The second part, he follows it up with a really simple act. We read, he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. What's going on here? This act is actually incredibly powerful again. Simple yet powerful. You know, a child in the day and age had no rights, no achievement, no net worth, no life of greatness yet to speak of. Their total dependence. Some of the most vulnerable members of society. And he said, do you see this little person? When you welcome one of these, you have got my heart. You've seen that neither me nor my Father in heaven is fussed about your worldly greatness, and neither should you in the way that you live. Do you know, I think a really helpful idea to get this verse and where it's coming from is to understand that in the Middle East at the time, guests were believed to be sent to you by God. And hospitality was considered a sacred duty to care for the one sent to you. Now, I think sometimes it's an idea we could do with getting something back of uh, in the modern church. It was a core ministry of the believer to love and serve and welcome guests, sojourners, to see them as God's gift to them, to welcome them really well. And in this act, Jesus is saying, look, look, I will send you the weakest people in society, children. And it is on these I want you to spend your time and your resources. And I want you to value these people greatly and deeply. It's to these people that I give you the sacred duty of serving. Those who the world devalues, put to the bottom of the pile, We are to value completely. And Jesus in this act is saying, this is what a life of greatness looks like. One who understands that it's my will, my heart, my father's heart, 
that you live in a way that serves and values even the poorest amongst you. They who have nothing to give in return. So his whole response in word and action to the disciples' argument is to completely shoot apart their notion of greatness. Your conversation, he says, has no place in my kingdom because greatness is service. To the extent that you are always willing and ready to welcome and care for those people and the world's ideas have no greatness to speak of. Have no greatness to speak of. I love Jesus' teaching. So simple, yet so challenging. It's what every preacher is gunning for, that that five-minute preach that totally redirects the thoughts to the way of God's thinking. Jesus was amazing. But what's more amazing, that if you look at this passage here, and the at the passage that came before this argument, the first part of what I read here, and what was Jesus was clearly trying to teach his disciples as he took that one last trip through Galilee before heading off to Jerusalem, is that the disciples should have already understood and got this. That greatness and worth is not about what you have achieved or accumulated, but laying down your life like Christ. They should have understood it. They should have been in no doubt that Jesus was the greatest and the only one that could be called the greatest in this regards. Do you know, we read this in this passage, that they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples and he said to them this, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. If we look at this passage, Jesus, as we've been learning about the last few weeks, refers to himself with this really important phrase, the son of man. This is the one who Daniel prophesied about hundreds of years earlier, who had come from an intimate place with God to save all peoples and begin an unending kingdom that shall not pass away, nor shall it ever be destroyed. By using this name, Jesus here was saying, by any measure of greatness, I am greater because I am the son of man. I am more intimate with God than you. I have a greater calling and purpose in him than anyone who has ever lived. I will achieve more than anyone. And my net worth, my net worth is everything. I own every photon, proton, atom, grain of sand, and they're definitely all my donuts. No one is more powerful, more capable, more glorious than me. I am the son of man because I am the one who made it all. And owns it all in God. I'm the one you saw transfigured, who Tor so beautifully explained a couple of weeks out when she described it as him showing his insides out to the world. When he showed us that what was on Jesus' insides, on that mountain, pure and utter radiance and glory, brighter than the midday sun. He is the son of man. Yet in the same breath in this passage, he says he will be made so low 
so low that the Son of Man will bow to such an extent that he will be handed over to all those greatness imitators in the world. Men, the created ones, and be battered and be bruised and be killed by them. Though he is the greatest, he would allow himself to be made nothing. Put his life entirely into God's hands and lay it aside for serving the purposes of God and all mankind at the cross, which we know from other scriptures is God's plan for saving mankind. From the beginning, he was sending Jesus to take all of the punishment we deserve for anything we have done wrong, that whoever trusts in his name can be fully cleansed and made right with God. Removing all and any barriers that stood between us and him and restoring our relationship with the living God who made us. Jesus had already said in those passing days and moments before this argument with the disciples had begun, and not for the first time in this book, that he and the kingdom model for greatness that he set was one of service above all other things. This was what he and his life was about. And that this was the type and model of life that God loved and honoured and was looking for. Do you know, his teaching here shows this point so clearly as well, that God honours this kind of life. In verse 31, in response to the humble service the Son of Man shows to God, we see that God would raise him back to life after three days that he would honour his making himself a servant to all mankind by bringing him back and raising him up to heavenly places. Do you know, this is a a wonderful truth of the Bible that is outworked better in Philippians 2, 5, 11 in the Christ hymn that we find there, which says this, In your relationship with one another, be as the same mind as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in all human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Do you know in these few verses. In Mark He has then just been teaching that his life will set an example of what greatness was. The perfect example of greatness in God's eyes for them to follow. But we read in verse 32 that they just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. Instead, they start to argue who is the highest in his purposes. They still clung to these wrong ideas of greatness in their life. 
And what's interesting is as we go on through Mark, if you read Mark 10, 32 to 41, even after he sat down and rebuked them in this way and taught them, they still didn't get it. We read that they, they later argued about who would have the right-hand seat by the Father, that place of special honour in heaven. And Jesus responds again, whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever would be first amongst you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' whole life, as we're going to see more and more as we move into the third part of Mark's Gospel, was aimed like a true arrow directly towards the cross to fulfill the Father's plan of laying himself down as a sacrificial lamb to see mankind saved and to serve his father, to be a servant of all. He would not let anything knock him off course, but trusted the father's plan. And God raised him up to this point of honour as a result. Where do we land here? So greatness, greatness, a life of greatness is this. It's sacrifice and a willingness to serve all. How great are you? How great are you? How great is your life by the measure that God measures it? Have you got it? Or are you like the disciples? You've heard it. You've heard it. You know it, but you're still really evaluating your life by these other measures. You're still judging it by the, the measures of the world around us. If we get this, and allow Jesus' teaching to truly shape us. I think it can be incredibly powerful and a massive encouragement to our lives. And actually an antidote to many of those social ills I talked about earlier on. It can help in those. Because I think first and foremostly what this says is this. In fact... A life of true greatness is an open door, no matter where you are on the wealth, achievement or talent ladder. You can live a life of greatness. Because no matter what your social status, no matter what education, no matter how talented, or what you've achieved, anyone, anyone who truly gets this can serve all around them. Serve those around them. And anyone can welcome those who are weak as a divine responsibility. No one is exempt from living this out because it's a heart attitude, a response to following Jesus' example, not about where you are positioned on the world's social ladder. Does that make sense? It's so important. Jesus says, a life of greatness is there to be had. Pick up the baton of servanthood and serve all around you. It's accessible. I've never, I've never exempt you all by not giving you the same lot. You can serve people wonderfully if you're rich. You can serve people wonderfully if you're talented. But you can serve people wonderfully, actually, if you're on benefits probably even more so, because you have the community connects to love those people who need his loving the most. 
You can serve people if you're disabled. You can serve people if you're sick. You can serve people if your life is built around student loans at the moment and you don't know what your lot's going to be in life. You can serve people if you're living a family life that's hectic and mad. You can serve people if you're a singleton with the love of God. You can live with the greatness that he's laid out before you. Do you know, and I think if you get this as well, it can actually take the edge off some of those issues that I talked about as well. You don't have to live in the anxiety or depression of comparisons with others that this can bring as you chase after worldly greatness. Because he's saying, don't chase after that. Chase after me and follow my example. And it can free us from that wrong, negative valuing of people, can't it? Who don't have as much as us. Because they become the very people that God says, I have sent you. Look after them. Love them. Show them my love. It's your sacred duty. And part of me thinks, church, do you know, Chrissy B laid out this wonderful vision, didn't he, that we feel just God's given us for this church, which is, do you know, if we run with it, uh, I truly believe a tool for transforming this city. Actually, that's what it's there, bringing more people into encounter with Jesus, letting them know his wonderful love. Reality is, to do that, it's going to be costly. There's going to be some mucky people he brings to us. He's going to say, spend your life on these people. There's going to be some challenges of time and energy. There are. And service. It's going to be a place, hopefully more and more, where you can learn to live the great life that God has set before you. I believe we've got to learn that if the church is going to rise to its place fully again in our society. So it's a really encouraging teaching. Do you get that? But it's by no means an easy teaching as well. Is there a truth of it? It's a massively challenging one. You know, the reality is often when I measure myself according to God's measurement of how well am I doing with this, I've been more wrapped up in the other stuff. And actually, here, I'm lower down on that chart by my own estimation. What do, what do I do with that? Do I beat myself up about that? What do I do with that? Do I, do I feel condemned as a Christian? Or well, no, not at all. I think we do only one thing with that, and I love the final words that came out of our worship today, which actually, Kathy, just so you know, you'll hear it in my final words from today's preach, which was exciting. We use it as a doorway when we realise that maybe we're not living the way that God wants us to by his word. It's not there to condemn us. It's there to recognise that sometimes we need to be forgiven and get the grace of God again in us and over us. When we realise we've not been living fully, chasing after that which his heart esteems and yearns for in us. We've been measuring our lives by the wrong yardstick. All we have to do is ask his spirit to come and bring his word to life in us afresh and help us live the truly great lives that he wants us to. And this is where I wrote down what Kathy and Chris brought at the end 
of service of our worship time earlier. There is no condemnation in God. Only a father who runs to meet us, these were written before the service, runs to meet with us and leave us forever changed by his embrace, his spirit, his love. So whenever it dawns on us that we've been living not as he wants, maybe with the pigs, all we need to do is turn and run to him and receive his embrace and help again. Greatness is servanthood of all.